everyone, welcome back to Relax with Animal Facts. I am Steph Wolf, and today I am going to be learning with you about our furry, scaly, or possibly even slimy friends. And in today's case, we are going to be covering a furry friend of ours, which is the oh-so-wonderful African Painted Dog. So this is a very special listener episode dedicated to Blake, who wrote in to the show via Instagram message. If you want to have your animal on the podcast, you can do one of two things. You can either email the show directly at relaxwithanimalfacts at gmail.com, or you can follow the Instagram, relaxwithanimalfacts, and send me a message, and you can say whether you like the show or, or whatever you want to send me, and you can tell me, what do you want to hear on the podcast? So, Blake, thank you so much for writing into the show. This episode is dedicated to you and dedicated to all of you listeners out there that make this show just so fun for me. So first and foremost, this episode is coming out just a little bit later than it was supposed to due to internet connection issues. I had a huge problem getting a technician out here, but finally we got it all fixed up and we can go back on our regular schedule Monday at 2 a.m. EST for all of our Animal Fact podcast episodes. So thanks for bearing with me, guys. It was super frustrating for me to spend, um, you know, this time, especially in this time with no wired connection anywhere. But regardless, here we are. Let's not focus on the past. Why don't we just focus on the oh-so-wonderful African painted dog that we're going to be learning about today. So for those of you new listeners out there, I want to let you know that I am not in any way an animal expert. I am someone just like you who loves to learn about animals, read about animals, and when I say at the top of the show that I'm learning with you, I truly am learning with you. So bear with me as sometimes I go on my little tangents and stuff like that to try to figure things out. I really encourage all of you to do the same, that when sometimes you're skeptical about a certain fact, maybe you want to research more. I'm all for it. You guys are super passionate. I get so many emails and so many different messages from you guys that I, it just makes me so happy to be doing the show. So why don't we just get right into the show? So I want all of you listening out there to notice where you've been carrying some of that tension throughout your day. Maybe this is at the beginning of your day. Maybe you're just walking around. Maybe this is the end of a long day that you've had. Notice where you carry certain parts of stress in your body, maybe with muscle tension and things like that. Just be mindful of it and let it go. You're going to be going into an immersive experience with me, Steph Wolf, into the world of the African painted dog, into the savanna. So I got my facts from awf.org, nationalgeographic.com, and africageographic.com. So I used three different resources for this amazing animal today, and just by the looks of it, I know that this is going to be a very, very fun and interesting episode for all of us. So, for the first fact of the show, unlike domestic dogs, 
Wild dogs have very long legs, four toes on their front feet, and large, rounded ears. Though both species descended from wolves, if we're talking about evolutionary history, they are unable to interbreed, and wild dogs cannot be domesticated. And we're going to go more into the domestication, or rather, the lack of domestication of these wild dogs a little bit later into the episode. So African wild dogs live in packs averaging from 7 to 15 members and sometimes even up to 40. So those of you with big families, I don't know how many of you have 40 people in your family. If so, wow, your Christmases, your Thanksgivings are probably crazy. But for the African wild dogs, they can have up to 40 and that's just sort of normal. Now, before the recent population decline, packs of up to even 100 wild dogs were recorded. And within the pack, these canines have a unique social structure. This is always so interesting for me to learn about because as we communicate, you know, me and you out in the world could be with verbal communication, nonverbal communication in the animal kingdom. There is a whole slew of different things that they use to communicate, whether it be through sounds, body language, dancing, you know, uh, these, these certain sort of rituals that they do. I always love learning about this. They cooperate in taking care of the wounded and sick members, and there is a general lack of aggression that is exhibited between members of the pack, and there is little intimidation among the social hierarchy. So this is super cool that we see that when animals are taking care of their, um, of their young, of the sick, of the old, of the wounded in some kind, it is, it is just so amazing that this is not uniquely a human trait, as we can see in these wild dogs. And I would certainly not expect a lack of aggression exhibited among members of a wild dog species, but that happens to be the case, which seems to make them unique in my eyes. I'm not sure how unique it makes them in the eyes of wild dogs in general, but I'm glad that the African wild dogs strike somewhat of a peace between members. And in social hierarchies, we've seen especially in many primate species, right, or, or different sort of species that have these social hierarchies in which intimidation is the cornerstone. It is the cornerstone of how they operate in terms of, I am the alpha male, you know, you can challenge me, but I'm going to win. There is a good amount of intimidation, whether it be through posturing or physical fighting or, you know, whatever it be, right? Intimidation is a very important thing, uh, important aspect in a lot of species in the animal kingdom. But it seems as though uh, African wild dogs are going to sway a little bit away from that, which is super cool. So every hunting pack has a dominant pair. So they are the only pair that remains monogamous, meaning that they don't have multiple mates at the same time, and they will remain monogamous for life. That is super, super cool, and I don't think it is all that common, especially in many other species that we've covered on the show. Wild dogs have a large range of vocalizations that 
include a short bark of alarm, say, to, to, to predators or, or different sorts of things like that, a rallying howl, and a bell-like contact call that can be heard over very long distances. And they've also been seen using elaborate greeting rituals that are accompanied by twittering and whining and twittering doesn't doesn't mean tweeting okay so they're not they're not pulling out their phones and tweeting here it is something totally different that has to do more with vocalization okay so i always like to relate what we're learning back to us humans right so we can sort of reflect about it so what comes to your mind when we think about elaborate greeting rituals for me, it feels like elaborate greeting rituals in humans could be maybe the handshakes that we do. It could even be just what we say to one another, how it's very common, say, in, in here in the Western world to just say, you know, hey, how are you? How are you doing? And most people don't have necessarily uh, elaborate responses. They just say, oh, I'm good. You know, how are you? Or good, right? But in the context of the whole animal kingdom, a certain kind of handshake that maybe you do with your with your with your friends, or you know, um, just even fist bumping or elbow bumping maybe is more appropriate now, um, could be seen as somewhat elaborate as an elaborate greeting ritual in in the, in the context of the whole uh, animal kingdom. So I just think that's so interesting. So both males and females babysit the young and provide food for them. So we see this pretty commonly um, in, in species where the animals in the pack all will work together in order to rear the young rather than having separate little families, right? This makes it so it's much easier for them to survive um, in their case. The hunting members of the pack return to the den where they regurgitate meat for the nursing female and pups. So almost like um, bird species, right? Where the uh, regurgitation is, is sort of a process, uh, is, is a normal part of the fr uh, feeding process. So although the litters can be fairly large, we have to remember that this is the animal kingdom, right? Very few pups will actually make it to adulthood and survive. Sometimes the dens are flooded or the pups can sort of um, expire from exposure or disease or things like that, right? Because this is the wild we're talking about here. When pack numbers are reduced, hunting is not going to be as efficient, right? Just naturally. And adults may not bring back sufficient food for the pups. And in some cases, more pups survive in packs where there are many more helpers available, right, to hunt and to bring food home to the rest of the pack. So these guys generally hunt for a wide variety of prey that includes antelopes, warthogs, gazelles, wildebeest, calves, rats, and birds. Um, and like most predators, they will play an important role in eliminating sick and weak animals that will there uh, that will in turn help maintain the natural balance and improve prey species. So I think it's so interesting that we once again have struck this idea of balance within nature. That nature strikes a balance, and the animals within these these ecosystems play such a vital role, whether it be for the preservation of resources or the um, 
or the health of prey species or predator species, whatever it, whatever it be, there is a natural role. And that's why it is so important to have ideas of conservation, because ecosystems rely on these um, on these animals to strike a balance. And with some of these animals gone, nature will have to sort of um, correct in some way that could be fairly destructive with, for example, eliminating more species afterwards or having an overpopulation of invasive species or of different species that, um, you know, that need correction within an ecosystem to keep it from collapsing. So let's not get too buckled down into the, into the thick of it there, but I just think it's so amazing every time we, we strike on this, on the nature of nature, I guess, to strike a balance with these animals. So they can run long distances at speeds up to 35 miles per hour. So certainly much faster than I can run. And of the large carnivores, wild dogs are probably some of the most efficient hunters. The targeted prey rarely escapes. Of course, there will be times, but generally it was said in the article that they have close to an 80% success rate, which is amazing. Pack hunting can be so good for um, in increasing the probability of securing their dinner, right? Because just being one, um, one predator, as opposed to having up to 50 or even 100 in the past in a, in a group, all hunting can be a real game changer. So the wild dog is called by several other names, included painted hunting dog and cape hunting dog. So if you're wondering what these wild dogs look like and you haven't googled it already and spoiled it for yourself, the wild dog's short hair is in yellow, gray, white, and black patches, and no two dogs will have the same markings and colorations. And this is going to play a really key role in having conservationists and researchers being able to identify animals, right? Because sometimes it can seem to the naked eye or to most of us who aren't, I suppose, professionals or um, experts with certain animals, they can look similar, right? Certain species. But with these dogs, they have these different patches that make it a lot easier for, for people to sort of identify which individuals um, they're looking at. In terms of conservation, the WWF is working to protect the wild dog by preserving wildlife corridors between reserves and reducing conflicts with locals. So this could be with farmers or, or just people that, that live in the area, maybe hunting these dogs for whatever reason. But of course, these are wild dogs, so sometimes farmers will have a tough time, right? For them, their livestock is their livelihood, right? Their animals that they, that they have within their farm are part of them being able to make a living. So many of them aren't going to even blink at the fact of getting rid of some of these dogs if it comes to protecting their livelihood. So reducing that conflict will naturally bring back some of those wild dog numbers. The dominant pair is monogamous and would usually be the only ones in the pack to breed. 
which this is fairly common, though a beta pair, meaning not the alpha pair, um, does sometimes produce pups as well, which are then either adopted by the alpha pair or unfortunately will be, will be killed by the alpha pair to sort of preserve whatever they want to preserve. In nature, it is not as um, nice, right? In the wild, it, it, it is pretty brutal for most of these animals. And each litter can have between four and 12 pups, and unlike most other pack animals, male painted wolves tend to stay within their pack's territory once reaching sexual maturity, whereas the females will travel those long distances to find a mate and start or alternatively join a new pack. This behavior is a good countermeasure against interbreeding, which can cause many problems within species. Now, the painted wolves used to be found across the African continent, but are now limited to countries in the south and east of Africa, the main strongholds being in Botswana's Okavango Delta and the Tanzania's Celis Game Reserve. East African painted wolves are slightly smaller than their counterparts in the south, and there are a total of five subspecies of painted wolf, and that is going to be the Cape, the East African, the West African, the Chadian, and the Somali. But right now in the scientific community, the true genetic diversity of these subdivisions is under debate. So we have seen in the past 50 episodes or so that subspecies can differ greatly in terms of size, in terms of behavior, maybe diet, right? These things all play a crucial role. But in the case of the painted wolf, the lines are a little bit more blurred. It is still under debate, the true genetic diversity of these subdivisions, how different their genetics actually are. Now, although painted wolves do share a common ancestor with wolves from a few million years ago, they are not genetically compatible, so interbreeding with any other canids are not possible, something that we covered just a little bit ago. Now, the selective breeding applied to domestic dogs, which formed the different breeds, could absolutely never work with the painted wolves. So the different breeds that we have now in our, I suppose, domestic dog species, we can see such a great difference. And this came from um, from years and years of, um, of breeding between different animals to get different mixes, different breeds. While for some, such as, you know, the pug or bulldog, it creates um, problems for them, right? Sometimes they'll have a, a, a trouble or difficulty breathing properly or, or whatnot. In the case of the African wild dog or the wild dogs, this isn't even going to be an option. It will never happen. And people have attempted to tame painted wolves in the past, but never with any success. They are naturally very distrusting of humans, which trust is, is definitely a needed factor when it comes to domest the uh, domestication process. Um, they are distrusting of humans or really any animal outside of their own pack. When humans have domesticated dogs in the past, it was due to certain character traits 
prevalent in canines that could be amplified through breeding. And one of these traits, generally, was a willingness to be touched by humans, something that these painted dogs really don't enjoy. So while they might look cute, fuzzy, furry, do your best to stay your distance because they don't really trust um, humans all that well. And, you know, there might not be a good result at the other end. So the traits of willingness to be touched by humans combined with traits of curiosity and opportunism really paved the way for humanity's greatest symbiotic relationship with an animal, which is, as we know, affectionately named the man's best friend, which is, you know, what we call our dogs. I personally have a dog, and I gotta say that um, Molly is truly a best friend of mine. And this has to do with um, the breeding process over these years that have gotten us to this point with this species. Now, something I just want to highlight really quickly for those of you that have not heard this word before, symbiotic, okay? Symbiotic means that the relationship between these two species is beneficial, to both species. It is not beneficial for just one. It is beneficial for both. So in the, exa in the example of uh, domesticated dogs and humans, where I can do it more personally and say me and Molly, Molly has a place to stay, warm shelter, a place to live. She has food that's readily available to her. She has clean drinking water. And for me, she provides me with great companionship, love, things like that, right? So things that benefit us both. Painted wolves, however, I don't think I'll ever have a painted wolf version of Molly. Um, they have never really displayed these traits, and it is fairly unlikely that they ever will. So if you see a painted dog, don't bring one home or ask your parents if you can keep it. Let's just let them be wild. The alpha female truly is the core of the pack, and she will lead her pack from its formation until she dies. She is the leader, the general, the decision maker, and caring mother as well. Once she dies, the pack will then split with the males and females heading in different directions to form new packs. So that is kind of interesting to me. I would more imagine, well, if I was to guess this process without reading it first, I would think that after the alpha female would expire, that another alpha female would sort of step up, that there would either be some interpersonal uh, competition of some kind to see who becomes the next alpha. Um, but in this case, it seems as though that doesn't happen. Communication is key and the pack members constantly will let each other know both their location and that of the prey. So their high intelligence and their ability to work together, their teamwork, will allow them to adapt to changing scenarios during a hunt. Because a hunt isn't always going to be linear, right? Things happen, the prey could move in a certain way that's not expected, and communication in the painted dog's is fantastic, it seems, and it allows them to be very successful in terms of hunting. Now, for the final fact, we always cover the name. What does the African painted dog, uh, dog's name mean? 
Well, I couldn't really find much. I think that it has mostly to do, if I was to guess, by their fur color. You can see that they have little blotches and, you know, um, different patches of fur that's different colors. So this could be um, why they're called the painted dog, as if they're sort of painted over with a brush sort of willy-nilly in certain spots. So that's what I would guess. But maybe I'm wrong. I encourage many of you out there listening, or not many of you, rather all of you, that if I ever say something that's incorrect, I'm sure that many of you know more about animals than I ever will, that you can reach out to me and let me know. And I will correct myself on the next podcast and give you credit for that. So that is the final episode of the show. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, and if you enjoy the podcast in general, make sure to follow on Spotify. If you're on Spotify, you guys have no idea how much that helps the show grow and reach more people. Or alternatively, if you're on different um um, applications such as maybe Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a review means the absolute world to me and the show. So thank you all so very much for tuning in. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast episode because I certainly did. And I will see you on the next podcast episode with the next animal. Take care. <laughs>